the problem of, of how do you sort of validate self-driving safety really needs to be something where the industry holds hands alongside regulators and comes up with an incredibly sort of rigorous third-party standard. Hello, and welcome to the Autonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch. And I'm here with Ed and sort of Alex Roy. And we also have a special guest, Jody Kelman, the director of Lyft's self-driving platform. Jody, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me here. All right, Alex, what was that question, that, that really rude question you wanted to ask again? Jody Kelman. Yo! Why? Why, why is the autonomous driving division of Lyft called Level 5? And you know this. I have a problem with this. Go, go ahead. So, so Alex, let's let's start with like the question under the question, which is why is a team that is fundamentally trying to build level four technology called level five? Uh, so, for those of you guys who are like tuning into the autonomous cast and who are not paying attention to SAE levels, like every single day of your lives. Uh, Level five technology is self-driving that is self-driving technology that is self-driving everywhere all of the time. Lyft is a ride-sharing company. And so one of the things that we actually think is really special about what we're able to bring to this is that we can make smart decisions behind the scenes about when to deploy a self-driving car to you as a Lyft rider versus, you know, a classic Lyft. And we can make decisions based on what the car is able to do. You know, is it snowing out? Uh, is this route covered by self-driving? And that is fundamentally what we would call level four technology, not level five technology. So, uh, so my answer to your question is this is what happens when you do not hire an expensive branding firm and you let your product management team name a division of your company. You actually focus on you know, getting the work done instead of a name that, that potentially, you know, rolls off the tongue. <laughs> that was an amazingly good answer, but I want to ask a follow-up question. Here I, it is. I can't wait. Were you in the room when this decision was made and did you personally oppose it? Is that, is that <laughs> fair to ask? So the, I, I did have protest signs uh, that okay. I was holding outside of, you know, the, the CEO's office when this happened. They were colorful. They were made with magic marker. Um, you know, since, since he is not here and I get, I get the power of talking, I will actually blame uh, my boss for this. So our VP of product management, Taggart Matheson, uh, was the brainchild behind the name Level 5. I think he may have originally thought the name was a joke. Someone thought it was a great idea, and the rest is history. So uh, I will leave it to you guys to puzzle whether we have a space in the name or not, Lift Level 5 versus Lift Level Space 5. I have never quite figured that out in our branding, uh, but that's you know for wiser wiser minds to take on. I think the good news here is that it could be worse. You could be called Stellantis. <laughs> oh, oh. That was a, that was my favorite press release, by the way, of the last uh, many weeks. Trying to understand what what is the Latin phrase we are we're building off of, and uh, they gave some great it's like to the stars or something yeah, like that. What the, the Latin roots were? Yeah, isn't isn't that how they came up with the title Ad Astra for the uh, recent science fiction film? To the story? It's, it's, it's ad aspera per astra. Oh, so that's actually yeah. a site 
which means to strive for the stars or something like that. But, but really I think the the most important takeaway here is that, you know, it's just a matter of time before Alex ditches us all and, uh, and starts his own branding consultancy. (laughs) He can solve these problems and then nobody will ever have to come on the Atonicast and and answer questions about, uh, about their name brand again. I, I hate to digress, but I will. Um, you love digressing, Alex. <laughs> digress away. Digress yeah. at will. In the mobility sector, there's such a shortage of, of creativity in terms of, of branding. It, it, everyone is like, trying to reinvent the wheel. I, re- I just had dinner with a guy named David Bell, who used to run the, War- the NBA program at Wharton, who's um, fascinating. And he was telling me that there's a startup trying to compete with Tushy, the uh, disrupt the bidet market. Oh, yeah, yeah, those and, guys. And the first thing I thought of was like, well, is it called Seashell? Because the three seashells from the Militia Man? And the answer was no. It was not called Seashell, which just indicates the lack, like people just, let's move on. What was the name of the company though? That's what I want to know. It would be not be appropriate for me to say because I don't think that they're public yet. They're still raising money, but let them figure it out. I'm pretty sure that they pitched me. Believe it or not. Did it start with a C? I need to look it up. Well, but please continue I mean, on. We're, we're not I, here to talk about bidets. Jody, we're here Jody. to talk about. I am going to interrupt go. all of you guys to say there's actually a serious point here in, in this kind of branding conversation, which is you know, we are talking about introducing a brand new technology to everyday consumers. Um, you know, in self-driving, I think those of us who are in the industry spend a lot of time thinking about its benefits and sort of what it is going to be able to do for society, both in terms of safety and how we reshape our cities. But if you are an average consumer, you want to try a new technology through a brand you already know and trust. And so like part of why we think at Lyft, there is such an opportunity for ride sharing to play a critical role in this transition to self-driving technology is like, you know, Alex doesn't have to go check out the new Tushy app. I, mm. This is a horrifying integration of these two threads, but you can just Eat open open the Lyft app that's already in your pocket and try mm. out, you know, a new technology from a brand you already know. Now, however much grief I would like to give Ms. Kelman on, <laughs> on many levels, I will grant her to the point she just made has tremendous merit. And one does not need to have gone to Harvard, have an MBA to recognize that that makes sense. Let's let's stick on. Can we can we stick on that just that idea for a second of opening the Lyft app? Like, does the, I mean? And and so I know Alex and I, and I think Kirsten as well. We all have ridden the, the BMWs in Las Vegas, yeah. and there there's some very very clear messaging about you know you're yeah. about to get a, an autonomous vehicle. Um, how, just how do you how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about sort of how yeah. when someone opens that app? Before, um, but wait, before you answer that, let's be really clear here, okay? You go to Vegas if you are in a if you are at certain hotels and you open the Lyft app, you have an option that says self driving, and when and, the, and that is provided by Aptiv, and a vehicle comes. And I have seen, uh, we've all seen. Um, Media stories about Aptive has done X thousands of self-driving drives. Hundred over a hundred thousand now. That's yep. Okay. Proud of that number. It's now, real. Now that we've set that up, and to be clear, it's Aptive providing the technology here, right. not Lyft, quote unquote, level five. <laughs> now that okay. we've set it up, go ahead, Jody. So, so yes, I should sort of step back and say Lyft has very much what we would call a hybrid approach to self-driving. So we both have 
what we call this open platform for self-driving, which is basically, hey, as a Lyft consumer, I want to open my app and get a self-driving ride, no matter who that ride is powered by. So if you're in Phoenix, it's going to be a ride powered by Waymo. If you're in Las Vegas, it's going to be a ride powered by Active. And eventually, if you're here in the Bay Area, you know, we're, we're going to see level five come on the scene. Um, and so for Lyft, it's much more about sort of building that consumer bridge and coming back to Ed's original question, sort of making this normal for people where when you open up your Lyft app, if a self-driving ride is nearby and available, it feels just like requesting you know, a classic Lyft or a shared Lyft. Um, and the same way that you know, if I had tried to get you, Alex, into a car with a stranger 10 years ago and had said, hey, just like open this app and we'll match you to a stranger and, and they'll show up at your door and it'll all be fine. We have very much the same expectation that we can bridge this, this sort of transition period for consumers by helping them do it in the context of an experience that they're totally familiar with. So their partnerships have been a big deal for Lyft yep. and I understand that you're like leveraging your network. Um, but I'm wondering if you are, why Lyft didn't instead just concentrate on being um, the, you know, the level five program scaling up and then rolling out within the app, you know, in various cities across the country was it just because you wanted to bring it to market faster and you wanted to be out there on the road faster and level five just wasn't at a point um, where it could be offering quote unquote self-driving rides, even though there is a human operator behind the wheel. And so instead it was, all right, let's look at partners that are a little bit farther along, or is there some other reason that, you know, Aptiv, you know, t was tapped for Las Vegas and then there's a partnership with Waymo and maybe there will be other partnerships um, down the line with other um, level four technology providers. I mean, I think first and foremost, I should say like Lyft as a company kind of has a history of a collaborative approach to solving problems. So that is very much in our DNA. And we actually launched our open platform for self-driving. Um, so our partnership approach before we launched our level five uh, team in uh, I guess that was three years ago now. Uh, so for us, really, the name of the game is like, how do we get this technology to consumers as quickly and as safely as possible? So we are at some level agnostic as long as we are bringing the best and safest technology to our Lyft riders. We want to be able to say to them, you are getting the safest ride possible on the Lyft platform. And if that's powered by Waymo in one city, Aptiv in another city, and Level 5 in a third we're very comfortable with that. And we kind of think, you know, there's actually some, oh God, I'm good. Alex is going to make fun of me because I'm going to use the word synergy, but <laughs> there's, there's overlap, um, you know, as we start thinking about how we can spread what we learn in one market into another, we think there's really an opportunity to actually share what we learn throughout the open platform and throughout our network with other partners to meaningfully speed the way we're able to bring this technology to market. You you touched on something really interesting, just kind of going back to the the user experience of of opening the app and especially sort of first time writer stuff. Um, you know, and, and everyone talks about trust is so important. Yep. And and what you said before about about sort of how you know at, at one point in time the idea that a stranger would just show up, um, not a licensed cabbie, right, and, and give you a ride that might have been 
um, a, a weird thing for someone to predict, you know, would happen. Um, and yet we've all gotten very used to it very quickly. I'm wondering, you know, and, and again, trust such a huge issue with autonomous vehicles because, um, but, but, but also it's interesting because when you think about it, right, like, you know, you do trust other human beings about whom you may know very, very little um, to, to keep you safe when you're driving. And um, so I, I'm wondering, my question is, did you learn things, um, you know, through the process of, of building trust around human drivers, uh, strangers, quote unquote, uh, that is applicable to, to sort of addressing this trust issue with, with autonomous vehicles? I, I love that question. And shockingly, no one's ever asked me that question before, which I will give you uh, I'll, because I'll this is the your way. Uh, but I, I think the biggest thing that the biggest insight we have taken from sort of what we learned in building Lyft as a company is the idea that there's something really powerful in seeing, you know, your best friend do it or your mom do it. And there's nothing that is as powerful as starting, you don't need to necessarily experience this for yourself. Someone in your first degree network needs to have experienced it and felt like it was a great experience. And so one of the things that, you know, we were joking about the 100,000 rides, but for us, this sort of first phase of deploying autonomous vehicles in the Lyft app and on the Lyft network is really about sort of building that halo of, you know, hey, Ed's tried it. In my case, like literally I have sent my mom to try it. And then she tells her friends uh, in the, and I do not reveal my mom's age, but in the 60 something uh, age bracket. And suddenly it becomes something that's normalized, you know, in her cohort, as well as in, you know, the tech corridors of San Francisco. And so, you know, I think when we actually put the cars on the road, one of the things we see in our data is like 96% of people tell us they want to ride again. Um, I'm sure you guys have experienced this when you're in the course of a ride, but if you sort of sit sit in the passenger seat uh, and watch someone who's taking that ride for the first time, you always see this kind of almost like super predictable journey where they are incredibly nervous at the beginning and sort of looking at what the car is doing and what the wheels are doing, what the safety driver's hands are doing under the wheel. And then like mid-ride, they're on their phone, they're texting their friends, it's just another lift. Um, and so I think the more people we can bring through that journey now, the more we are able to sort of share out with the world that this is something that is coming and that is normal and that is frankly here today. What what do you think is going to happen? And of course, I'm interested in when this is going to happen. But what do you think is going to happen when the driver is removed? Let's use Las Vegas as uh, as the example here. Or I, I know that last time, and maybe things have changed, but last time I was in one of the vehicles in Las Vegas, they did take over manual driving and like parking lots and like things like that. So what and when, how are you going to handle that um, education piece when the, either the safety driver is removed or the capabilities of the self-driving vehicle? So more and more capable happens. And how are you going to be educating and getting that level of comfort? Because you're right, that ride that, you know, watching people, how they they are nervous at first and then it, then it changes as someone who's been in a, like a ton of these demos and things like that, like I've watched other people go through this, but there is something fundamentally different from when you yeah. take out the driver. And I think Ed could 
Ed's had this experience as well. It does feel different. And so, you know, and we're people who write about it and, you know, talk about it a lot. How do you get like the average person to get to that level of comfort? And when do you think that that's going to happen? So one, I think that is what you've just hit is kind of the name of the game for our consumer team. So almost all of the work that we are focused on now as Lyft, you know, circa 2020 is making that transition as we pull the safety driver out comfortable for a rider. So the way that we think about that is very much the way we think about product development in the rest of Lyft, which is we are essentially shipping products and testing them while we have a safety driver in the car. So we're sort of slowly taking away the responsibility that the safety driver is playing in that that rider's life. So right now, you know, if you get into an active ride in Las Vegas, there is for everyone who hasn't done this, there's I always say you get three for the price of one, you get uh, your safety driver, your safety operator who's sitting up there in the, the passenger seat to make sure the vehicle is staying safe. And then you get your actual self-driving system. Uh, and what we found in our early research was that the role of the safety operator was actually outsized in people's experience. So they were making, uh, they were playing a huge role in sort of educating people about the technology and how, what the car was doing at any given moment. And so what you see us doing now is slowly productizing each piece of that. So when you get into the car, instead of being greeted by a safety operator, you'll be greeted by a remote agent. Uh, we sort of jokingly internally call them our bellhops. Um, but we, uh, they are there to assist you as a rider who is coming on your first self-driving ride. And what we're really focused on now is how do we sort of change the form factor, change the communication pattern, change the interaction point in a way that maximizes the customer comfort with the journey. So we do expect there will be that moment of you know, almost tensing up uh, that first time you get into the driverless ride. And if we're successful at what we're doing now, what we'll be able to do is really transition that you know, to someone who's outside of the car, um, or even, you know, you can imagine it being, uh, you know, your version of an Alexa or a Siri um, that's sitting in your autonomous car and is is guiding you through that ride. That's something that you would in, you would develop internally, though, or do you see that as another partnership opportunity, like that that uh, remote um, bellhop, if you will? And I'm not sure if Alex approves of that branding, but uh, I, I can I can that I will officially say. And Eric, our our comms team, they uh, you know, get that is internal uh, code name. So sure. I think I've just gone off script. We but, all yeah. know that the only good mobility brand is Mo apostrophe ability okay which well, solves all problems and send your checks to me is that the equivalent of like the little paper clip in uh microsoft uh mobility <laughs> is everything yeah um, all right I, well when mo when mo or whomever the the we voice will, is we will it. rename our our in-car guide the mo in mm. honor of Alex and uh, send him, send him the royalty checks. Yeah. My friends, I'm going to have to sign off in a moment, but I would urge you to hammer Jody on all the obvious questions that I cannot. Well, um, do you want to ask and looking it back to the other one, but um, do you have anything to ask? That's truly important. Absolutely not. It would not be reasonable. Or no, fair nothing about, did, did she ever I'm play Sim, city? Mm. Nothing about aviation, nothing about, 
What are the typical classic? Have you it, read this book? It, it sounds like you can replace me with the Alex Roy soundboard. Um, we're, we're working are you on it. Ask me whether I, before you got on, I was uh, talking about my, you can ask me about my secret COVID habit, which is eating honey nut Cheerios uh, during, you know, forget health, just go back to childhood cereal and uh, in times of trouble. Well, well Alex does Nutella, so you know. I'm on a diet now. All right, guys, I gotta go. Have a great time, and I want you to absolutely dismantle not Jody personally, but Lyft as a company, please. To be fair, to be fair, I absolutely was one of those people who bought into the good guy optics of the uh, the mustache. And when I see the two options, Lyft and almost anyone else right now, and I see, I I, I go for the Lyft because I feel like, well, right. I always say five, I've been at Lyft five years, and the reason I'm still around is what you hear inside the building and our optics outside the building are exactly the same. So the hypocrisy test, it passes for me, which is what keeps me at the company five years later. Great. Now, guys, I want you to absolutely assault the level rip, five rip division. Into that. Now, take, now, I want you to assault the level five division. I got to go. Have a great day. Nice to see you, Cody. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. All right. Well, back now that that uh, station break from <gasps> Alex occurred. Uh, you know, so back to the like question about that remote operator, what that will look and feel like. Would that be something that like Lyft is potentially already working on? Or is that another partnership? Dependent on who their partner is, like let's let's say in Phoenix, Waymo, uh, Las Vegas, Aptive, would that be something that they would be kind of in charge of, or would be that would that be something coming um, from Lyft internally? I think the the way you can almost think about it most simply is like you know, today one of the things Al- Alex was talking about the mustache sort of historical Lyft branding. The the other historical Lyft branding was your friend with a car. That was our very first uh, brand identity. And so anything that looks like sort of how are we making this ride feel comfortable for a Lyft rider, I think is going to sit with Lyft, whatever that looks like in terms of form factor. Um, I think that's very much something that that we believe needs to come from us and we believe is is firmly in the wheelhouse of what we've developed over the last almost you know 10 years as a brand. So if you think about, you know, why did people take Lyfts? You know, often people would tell us, our, your drivers are friendlier. Um, I feel better when I'm in a lift. And that's very much the same feeling we want to bring into this next generation of transportation. You should be able to get into a ride and and feel like you are in a lift that's taking care of you, whomever's car it is. So if I were to interpret that answer, then I would say that that's probably be something that would be developed in-house from Lyft to 
to, to feel, you know, to keep that thread uh, consistent, you know, that experience. Exactly. Okay. Um, so on the, on the sort of trust thing, um, you know, you're with an interesting situation in that you're developing AVs yourselves, but also, you know, offering them from others on your platform. Um, and it seems like the, where those two, uh, uh, tasks sort of meet or responsibilities meet is sort of in, uh, you know, measuring safety, right? Like, like, how do you know, and this is sort of the fun, one of the fundamental questions of AV development, but, but it's also, you know, again, there's a slightly maybe unique perspective on that when, you know, you're having to say, okay, you know, our customers trust us. Exactly. Right. And, and so, and so we're going to need to trust you in order for your autonomous vehicle to be on the platform. Now, obviously with humans, you know, there are things you can do with insurance and, and driving record and, 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 you know, you could say, okay, this person is, it can be a Lyft driver and this person can't. How, how does the, how does this work with a, you know, when, when you get into the autonomous vehicle? I mean, I think, I think you are right on, like if you take a, if, not that anyone's flying anywhere these days, but you know, if you get into get onto a plane, you are holding Delta accountable. You're not holding, you know, Boeing or Airbus accountable. Um, and so we very much expect like passengers are going to be looking to us uh, to really make sure that that they are protected in a self-driving ride. Um, and I think for us, this this does very much come back to the collaborative approach. I mean, this is. Ed, I think you're in this day in and day out. Um, the problem of, of how do you sort of validate self-driving safety really needs to be something where the industry holds hands alongside regulators and comes up with an incredibly sort of rigorous third-party standard. Um, you know, I am I am the child of two government professors, so I'm always the, the odd tech person who like truly believes in regulation. Um, but I do think this is going to be a place where, you know, we really do have to you know, take organizations like PAVE, the Partnership for Automated Vehicle Education and Safety, um, and work with bodies like NHTSA to really come up with a rigorous set of rules that are going to allow people to feel safe whomever's car they are in on the road. And I think you know, our approach to this is how do we be uh, sort of active uh, promulgators of early standards. So things that we can do from our end look like, you know, how do we share data? How do we contribute back um, to sort of a third party standard? But we we don't want to be in this sort of setting the rules for the industry because collaboration is going to be critical for everyone. But but I assume you have some sort of minimum and I, and I understand if you don't you know, can't share them, but I assume you have some minimum standards for, you know, allowing an autonomous vehicle on your platform, right? I mean, there's got to be some yes. basic uh, level of trust there. So, I mean, can you give us a sense of where that comes from, just so we can get a, a sense of, of like how, how you would make that decision, decide, yeah, you you can be on our platform, but you kind of rather not? Um, so uh, the, the sort of shareable piece of this is right now we work with companies that are deploying on our platform to make sure that we have sort of a checklist of standards that are mutually agreed um, and that have been developed. Um, you know, I think there are still, we're still all waiting on kind of the UL and the SAE third party standards to bring them in-house. Um, but right now we, we've agreed to a set of you know, shared, shared practices that look like um, you know what are what are standard safety practices you take on? What are validation rules that both parties are comfortable with, et cetera, et cetera? 
Um, I, and I think you've you've probably interacted with John Maddox, who you know came over to us from from NHTSA, um, and he's been integral in helping us sort of develop what we think is a best in class standard there. You created the open platform before Level Five launched publicly, right? Correct. So, how has that been with partners? I mean, do they? Because on the one hand, um, especially when you first opened up the platform, it was, and I remember writing about this. It was like, oh, this makes sense. Lyft wants to tap. Like they have the network. They're a piece of the puzzle. They have something that the AV developers don't have. But now you're also developing uh, the autonomous vehicle technology. So do then these partners view you also as competitors? And how do you keep those two worlds separate? Because they're it, like I've been to the Aptive uh, facility in Las Vegas and uh, seen all the vehicles and things like that. There has to be some sharing of information. And I wonder, like, is that complicated by the fact that now you also have a division level five that's working on, you know, autonomous vehicle technology? How do you, I guess, what's the comfort level there? And do you have this like wall between information and how does that work? So, so one, I should say I lead our open platform team. So I, I sit on that side of the house. Um, and to that point, I think the way we think about this very much is uh, there's a wall between the two divisions. Uh, and so, you know, we are very comfortable as Lyft sharing information back from level five to our open platform partners. And one of the things we're really trying to figure out how we do is take, you know, things like we acquired Blue Vision Labs two years ago, which allows us to build sort of 3D HD maps um, from just cell phone camera data instead of from, you know, a full AV sensor suite. And that potentially gives us this opportunity to sort of step change the way that we're looking at mapping a city. And so what what we are very interested in exploring is how do we take some of that foundational data and technology and feed it back into our open platform partners, um, potentially to allow them to to get to market faster, but also, frankly, to keep them excited about our platform. and so there's sort of a, a shared interest there in, in bringing the, some of the tech that Level 5 is developing back into um, our partnerships. And then what we're able to bring back into Level 5 ultimately is you know, my team is very focused on how do we develop these consumer experiences that work uh, for a Lyft rider and make them feel comfortable with it, the technology and be able to sort of really understand that by the time level five cars are getting out onto the road. Um, I think there are also, you know, I do this, I talk to people about this sort of day in and day out. And one of the things I think people sort of miss in the autonomous, uh, in the autonomous narrative, I guess I would say is some of the non-sexy pieces of this that really need to be ironed out um, before you get sort of a scaled fleet of autonomous cars on the road. So just Things like fleet management, how are you going, you know, in these COVID times, we are all thinking about how do you have the right processes in place to clean and sanitize cars effectively? How do you make sure that that's not adding dramatic cost to your business? And so I think there are there are a lot of pieces of the business aspect of rolling out self-driving technology that, that we don't talk as much about because it's not as sexy, but it's really like when we think about the nuts and bolts and what, what the open platform focuses on, it's really these two pieces, which is like, how do you build the consumer experience that people are willing to trust so that you can get this technology to market faster? 
And then how do you build the kind of underlying uh, framework for an autonomous business where, you know, Lyft today, we, we don't by and large own fleets. And so we've started, uh, we've started to really think about how do you build things like a fleet management capability uh, through some of these partnerships. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's kind of an interesting point though, right? Because it's not like you weren't really a fleet company before, right? Although now it, is, is this sort of like the shift to electric and some renting to, to, to your drivers and things like that? Is that? Yeah, I think that, that's a, a sort of good point to bring up, which is we do uh, have this express drive program online today, which allows our drivers to, uh, rent cars through Lyft, as well as a set of vehicle service centers where they can get those cars serviced, which we absolutely expect will be uh, the backbone of our autonomous fleet. Um, the piece I think that most of us are are spending a lot of our time thinking about and are really excited about is how do we make this electric transition? Um, so Lyft just committed to having 100% of its fleet electric by 2030. Um, and when you really start sort of unpeeling the layers of how we're going to do that, I mean, the question of if you place a, an electric vehicle charger in the right place versus the wrong place, it can have like a 10x difference in how much it costs you to operate your fleet per mile of operation. And so based, using that sort of baseline we have with our ride sharing data today to build an efficient both you know, driver-based electric fleet, but also autonomous electric fleet is what's really, I think, getting getting people jazzed uh, in, in the theoretical lift hallways today. I guess the lift hallways of, of Google Hangouts. Uh, so can I interpret the charging piece of it as maybe that Lyft is going to be involved or partnering with companies to build out charging infrastructure? So I won't comment on that just because I, I don't, I think it's sort of more, I would push some of those conversations to Cal Langton, who uh, we hired from Tesla. He ran all of their supercharger infrastructure. Um, but I think what I do feel comfortable talking about is the idea that, you know, if we are committing to 100% of our fleet being electrified by 2030, there are real moves we're going to have to make as a company. And I think... I like seeing us go in that direction because there's a bunch of follow-on effects that you can you can expect will need to come from that. And then back to the autonomous piece, it, that EV commitment is directly tied to how Level 5 envisions sort of the types of vehicles that would be like yeah. on the network. And I, I mean, the, the sort of idea that we would transition to an autonomous fleet that is uh, internal combustion engine sole occupancy, I think, is not exciting for anyone. So you know, the opportunity here is how do we take these single occupancy vehicles and turn them into shared electric fleets, you know, get rid of uh, the, the sort of when I think about this, the stat that always boggles my mind is that we dedicate an area of the size of Connecticut to parking in this country. And so, you know, if you continue a world where we have vehicles that are occupied 4% of the time, unoccupied 96% of the time, we just fundamentally, we don't change the economics, we don't change the congestion story, we don't change you know, the physical imprint story. And so I think this is, this is a really powerful move in the right direction. So 
the right now though, in the world that we live in, in this COVID era, as I like to call it, transferring to EV seems like an easier thing than getting people to share vehicles. And I know that this potentially won't last, but I do think behaviorals will behaviors will change and a, a bit. And I'm just wondering like how you're even thinking about it. And I know it's early days, but how do you mm. see Lyft being able to get people to share an autonomous vehicle and not use it as their personal transportation pod? I mean, what was that like Elon Musk, right? Ed, who was like, the future is individualized mass transit. Correct. <laughs> Which you can see the congestion issue that might be produced by that. Um, so how do yes. you how how does how is Lyft thinking about that? Like how is that even possible right now? What are the types of ideas? Understanding that these might not be these might not happen, but what do you do? Just put partitions up, and I mean, how do you really really get people to share a vehicle? Yeah. One, I think I would say. Uh, I think we do know that people are willing to share vehicles under the right circumstances, right? If you make it economically attractive for them and we aren't in the midst of a global pandemic, then there's some really basic things you do. Like you route them efficiently. You make sure that the cars are clean and sanitary and that you have a sort of cleaning protocol in between rides and you make it economically attractive. So I I don't worry that we won't be able to shift this behavior back with the right sort of uh, set of basically cleaning systems in place and economic and efficiency incentives in place. With that said, you know, I think there are things we're starting to explore even within level five today to try and transition rider behavior in the COVID world. So level five has has used some of its hardware uh, expertise to start producing partitions that we are now shipping to Lyft drivers to make sure that that riders and drivers can both feel comfortable getting into even a solo ride today. And so I think, you know, no one has a crystal ball on, on COVID. I would say I am personally more in the camp that people will, the behavior change will be shorter lived than any of us expect it to be. Um, but I think, you know, the one thing that I have seen us do over and over again as a company is when stuff hits, you innovate. And so I'm not spending a huge amount of time worrying about being able to get people into shared rides, sort of circa shared autonomous rides circa three years from now, because one, I do have a foundational belief that from what we've seen in our ride sharing network that we will be able to do this with the right sort of mix of, of incentives. And then two, if for some reason we're wrong, then we will test and innovate our way out of it. And I think we've shown that we're able to do that pretty quickly. So that, that gives me confidence that we have a pretty strong path forward there. So big, big piece of this that we have to um, at least discuss a little bit. And it's, it's also, you know, like a lot of these issues, there's, there's so much, desire and I think even need to share information about stuff like this, but at the same time, like it, it's, it's stuff that, you know, obviously it's, it's a, there are competitive issues around this. So with that all in mind, uh, just the economics of, of autonomous ride hailing, um, it's something, I mean, we've had, um, well, first of all, I think the, the baseline for this, right, is, is um, there are different views of the, of the fundamental economics of ride hailing period, right? And, and maybe you can address some of those, but, but then sort of when you bring in the autonomous 
uh, aspect of it, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not that can survive as a business period. And, and for example, we've had uh, Ashley Nunes from, from MIT come on and talk about the challenges there and, and really sort of, you know, how utilization and, and, and the one piece too is, is, you know, you mentioned that where an electric vehicle charger is located can have this profound impact. And I'm wondering maybe, um, you know, are there other things like that, that, and maybe I'm asking like seven questions here, but like, you are, are there things like that, that like, <laughs> you know, are, are, are not intuitive things that have a really big impact on And that? so, so I, I am not, I'm channeling Alex a little bit. I will say, you know, now that Lyft is a public company, um, I, I have to be very careful in terms of what I, I say here, just because I have learned, I have responsibilities that you know, were quite different than when we were a private company. Um, I think the short piece that I can say is we would not be investing in autonomous if this were not interesting to us economically. And and so you think, it, I mean, and I guess maybe another way, like, you know, there, there's the opportunities, of course, in a, in a driverless thing for, for other revenue sources and stuff. Like, do you think the business depends on, on things like that or, or is it really intrinsically on its own, uh, uh, you know, going to be a standalone I think what I would say in terms of a, a little bit sort of touching on the optimization piece of this puzzle, what we know is that a fully optimized autonomous fleet where you've selected the right routes, you are running cars at the right time of day, and frankly, willing to leave them idle um, for short periods of the day if you're uh, not seeing periods of, of peak demand. Um, and running them only on sort of valuable routes uh, is incredibly important in terms of being able to launch this service uh, in a way that's economically interesting. And so it's part of, you know, when we think about why is ride sharing so critical in the transition to autonomy, you know, coming back to our very first discussion, level five autonomy is potentially decades out. The idea of running a a fully autonomous car everywhere at all times, you know, it's not quite a pipe dream, but it is, it's certainly quite far away. But if you are really smart about where you run your level four car, then you have some opportunity as a, as a ride sharing business where you sort of know what your economics look like uh, that you don't necessarily have uh, in, in a world where you're trying to do this kind of flying blind. It's um, what you're kind of getting at actually was something that I found pretty interesting a few years ago when the Lyft slash Aptive partnership first began. Mm -hmm. At that time, that was when we were pretty like right up at the top of the hype cycle in terms of autonomous vehicles. And pretty much, you know, everyone I was talking to about that robotaxi or ride hailing application there was no discussion about the split between human drivers and autonomous drivers. It was all about autonomous driving. But Lyft was an active, both at that time told me, actually, we, and, and I'm, I think that it's stayed the same. And so maybe you can comment on it. But that, no, actually, our intent isn't to, we actually see that, that, autonomous vehicles should be used in very specific routes, as you just mentioned, and that 
there are other ones where it would make a lot more sense for human drivers. And it was the only company at that time that actually was like publicly talking to me about that. So one, is that still the philosophy? It sounds like it is based on what you were talking about in terms of the economics. And do you see that as a slow transition to eventually being like the the dream of all autonomous? Or do you think that there will always be a need to have human drivers on your network? So I think there will always be a need. Uh, so one one less than 1% of vehicle miles traveled today, roughly, are covered by ride-sharing uh, vehicles now. And so as we start seeing you know, the economics for a rider change um, and potentially rides becoming cheaper, particularly with these shared fleets, we do expect to see both sort of that headwind in the overall ride-sharing market. Um, I think I used... I always headwind and tailwind are like they're these mm-hmm. phrases that to me as a human I always get them wrong. But we we see upside uh, in this is why I didn't become an airline pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see upside in the the ride sharing market, um, and so I think you know what you will see is as we start doing things like expanding to more rural areas, there will continue to be a need for that human powered fleet that is always sort of acting in partnership with with the autonomous fleet. Um, I think there's, there's a nugget in what you said that I also think is important to touch on, which is, you know, like Ed, as a rider, you were, you're telling you, you were were talking about, you live up in Portland. Um, And when you open up your Lyft app in the morning to get, you know, to work or, you know, a a friend's soccer game, assuming we can ever leave the house again. All you care about is that you can actually get where you're going. You don't want to open up an app that works like 30% of the time because your routes are supported or the weather is right or the time of day is right. And so we do think the the sort of power of this hybrid multimodal network where Lyft is able to not only offer you self-driving cars, but a classic Lyft, you know, a bike or a scooter. Um, or even access to transit is going to be critical in bringing consumers back to the Lyft app because fundamentally, at the end of the day, they're not looking to try a self-driving ride. They're looking to get where they're going, and they want to be able to do that 100% of the time. Um, on the on the economics question and, and sort of related to this multimodal issue, which which I absolutely agree, with, right? You you want to the more you can just open the one app and and have you know any you know, op, uh, the opportunity to, to serve whatever ride you might, you might want, like the more likely you are to open it. That makes a ton of sense to, to make the autonomous piece of that work. Um, yeah, obviously you have to develop the stack and, and, and have that all working and, and a high confidence level in that. But, but um, how important is the optimization on the vehicle side itself? And like, like to get to uh, that viable business that you see, um, does it have to be a purpose-built vehicle? Can you kind of take a, a vehicle and retrofit it and and have it provide a the level of of service that people are going to need and expect, um, but b also sort of the the economic unit you know efficiency uh, to to really make that that part of the service work. I don't know that it's as as much of a question of sort of purpose built versus coming off like the production line. I think there is there are two things that matter. One, there's just a price point where this gets interesting for people. Right, we we know what it is. It's possible to hit 
Um, and then there's secondly, a supply chain question, which you know, I do think COVID is really interesting here, at least in the short term. Um, you know, for, for a long time, LIDARs were the, the scarce piece of the puzzle and you couldn't really get a LIDAR if you wanted to, to go build your own. If you wanted to go do your little garage startup self-driving car, it was really hard to actually forget how much you were willing to pay. It was hard to just get access to sort of high quality LIDAR. Um, and so I, I think what we'll really see in the next few years is supply chains catching up with where we need to be in terms of the, the sort of price point. We're already seeing that come out of the industry. And frankly, part of why we we love you know someone like Active in this race is they come from that OEM background. They are very much used to what does it mean to actually build uh, a car that needs to get out onto a lot with a fixed cost envelope. Uh, and so, you know, I think that is why you're seeing some, some consolidation in the industry towards players who have a little bit more of that, that, you know, vehicle manufacturer or OEM experience, because at some level, the bomb is going to matter. Um, and that's, that's, I think, where the next phase of this industry is going is, is the cost down. We should we should be clear. Bomb meaning bill of materials. Yes, not correct. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate the clarification. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just one one other thing on this too. I, you know, you you mentioned obviously the the hybrid, you know, human and autonomous, and and that there should. Can you give us a sense of of sort of where aut- autonomy makes sense economically versus human driven right to like what kinds of what are the sort of the characteristics that, that differentiate a, a route that will probably stay human for a long time and you mentioned utilization is sort of one of them but I, so I, I think the big driver here is how much HD mapping continues to be something that is uh, cost prohibitive and certainly that's something we are, are working on within our level five division but right now you can kind of think of it in terms of density. So we're, you see where we are in Las Vegas. We like aggregation of demand uh, without sort of, I would say, significant complexity of uh, pickup experience. So let me give you two different examples. An airport, not great for us today. It's a complex enough pickup experience that the tech is, that's a pretty complex problem for a self-driving car to handle from a tech perspective, it's a lot of edge cases. Um, but what makes an airport exciting for us is that concentrated demand. So you know you're coming from one place and going to a limited set of other places within a city. And so what I expect you will see is that these are really, these autonomous vehicle networks are really focused early on on some of these very high density you know, commute routes. Um, you know, from some sort of concentrated pickup point within uh, a city to a financial district, for instance, uh, or something like a transit hub to a last mile drop-off point, where then we ask someone to walk a block or two to that final destination. Um, but you know, using using an example that's top of mind because of where Aptit's headquarters are, um, for instance, a, a great use case there is South Station is sort of you know, a 25 to 30 minute walk for people who live at the other end or who work at the other end of the seaport. Um, but there's a bunch of high density office buildings there. And so you can imagine that that's the type of route that's really interesting for us because we have 
high density at, at pickup and high density at drop off. Um, so because it's the anniversary week ish of ADA, uh, one thing that, you know, so I think it's, it's on the table for a question, regardless of the anniversary, right. But one of the things that is, um, is important, but also has been a little bit bothersome for me as I've been writing about mm-hmm. this for many years is there is discussion and talk, and I would even put it under sometimes the category of marketing uh, about how, you know, autonomous vehicle company X is going to help people with disabilities and it's going to be so, it's going to help with ex- accessibility and things like that. And it's certain folks, you, you know, that could happen today, right? So someone who might be blind um, with some user experience um, shifts in technology, audio, stuff, stuff like that. But if someone is in a wheelchair, there isn't really a vehicle that exists, uh, the form factor that could accommodate that. And so what is, is level five working on anything like that? Like even in partnership, with paratransit or something like that, or even their own vehicle that could accommodate sort of everyone, including people who are, uh, you know, are using a wheelchair right now. My sort of personal experience of this is I, one of my first roles at Lyft was as our accessibility PM. So it was back when Lyft had 10 PMs and that was one of, of many jobs that I had. And so I would get firsthand the emails from our users when we had, you know, in some way either done something great to allow them to get out of their house. And I would get lots of amazing emails that made me, you know, just go home feeling like I was actually participating in something that was was meaningful and important about how we had changed people's lives in terms of their ability to get out of their houses. And then I would get the much harder emails that were like, hey, you broke the request flow with this new update. Uh, I can't, I couldn't get to my job this morning. And so you really feel um, the day-to-day impact of the work that accessibility has on people's lives. My answer to this is there is a bit of a walk before we run and a bit of the sort of power of the hybrid network here. You know, I think long-term self-driving technology has this massive ability to change the accessibility story for people, but I absolutely agree with you that it is, you know, right now it's it's more biased towards our blind and low vision users. So, you know, we did a demo in, in Las Vegas with the National Federation for the Blind and it was incredibly cool. We could show, you know, what what the car was seeing on a Braille map, but it's a BMW. It does not fit a wheelchair uh, today. And so, right now, what Lyft would do is we would deploy uh, a third party paratransit vehicle to a user who you know, was along a route that we couldn't service with with a self driving wave accessible vehicle. Um, you know, I I have some hope that some of the things that align with what's going to make self-driving vehicles economically attractive also align with wheelchair accessibility. So things like having configurable cabins 
that allow people to interact with each other, either face forward or, or face back and sort of a shift in the cabin form factor. Um, there are some opportunities here that, that allow us to actually shift the way we sort of sit in our classic ride sharing cars that I think may overlap with um, an accessibility sort of step change. But my honest answer is, I don't think that's going to be part of your wave one. I think it's going to be, people are going to focus on how do we get these onto the road? How do we then supplement the self-driving need with, uh, you know, a classic paratransit uh, wave accessible vehicle? Um, and then in, in phase two, people will really start looking as they, as they shift that form factor and remove the drivers or the steering wheel from the car, they'll start looking at accessibility in that that wave. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, before when talking about the kind of roots and stuff, like, you know, knowing where there's demand and, and, you know, where people are, where people want to go, you know, having that sense really helps you understand, you know, where, where some of these autonomous things are going to make the most sense economically. Um, I'm wondering, I know, I know, um, you know, Lyft has, has sort of worked with companies um, you know, to sort of provide transportation to and from work. And, and that's going to be a situation, right, where just like that, you know, this is the workplace, right? And then again, maybe some of this is in flux too because of, of this world that we're in. But, but that aside, um, you know, and then, and then also, I mean, I, you know, and I'm really glad Kirsten brought up the accessibility issue because it is definitely something that's near and dear to my heart. And, and you, could, you could think, you know, as well, there are communities where, whether elderly people or, or or disabled people or whatever, is that something we're going to see a little bit more of, um, particularly in the autonomous context of sort of identifying? Okay, here's this community. Here's sort of the two hubs for that community, the two places that they, they most regularly travel between, um, and and sort of working with that community to sort of provide them with. Is that one of the things that helps make this work? Is that an incidental, nice to have thing? Like, how does that fit in? I mean, I think it depends on the company. You certainly see companies like Voyage really taking that model you know, from day one. Um, I think for for a company like Lyft, we will really think about where do we see demand today rather than trying to create new pockets of demand. So we'll sort of take the data we have uh, and tailor the routes to that rather than vice versa. But I, you know, when when I think... To, I guess to end on a, a happy note, when I think about why I do this personally, like I have this imprint in my memory of taking away my grandparents' car keys, particularly my grandmother after she got into a crash. And I've now mentioned my mom twice. She is going to kill me, but she's 68. And I figure I have somewhere between sort of 10 and 15 years to be able to preserve her mobility through autonomous vehicles. And she lives out in the suburbs. Uh, so I need to be able to figure out how do I get autonomous cars both deployed in an urban landscape where she can still hop around Boston, which is where she lives today, and, and get everything she wants to get done done, but also get her you know, from her house in Concord, Massachusetts into the city. Um, and so that's when I'm thinking about like, what's my North Star? It's very much how do I not have that conversation with my mom 10 years from now where I say, by the way, I'm taking away your freedom. And instead I say, hey, we've been building this thing and it's here for you. Uh, and and now, you know, keep living your life because you're kind of a badass. Like, go do this. 
you know, and you, you mentioned freedom and, and it's actually, it's funny. It's something I've been thinking about a lot too. It's, it's not just mobility as you, as you say, it's, it's, it's actually personal autonomy. There's like a distinction there that I think not 100%. everyone understands unless you've had to deal with that personally, it's hard to understand what that, what that difference is. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, that's really cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a blast. Thank you guys for, <laughs> for hammering me appropriately. Yeah. 